Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. <clears throat> Today we finally come to the end of the Easter season. On the church calendar, this is the seventh Sunday of Easter, but it's also called Ascension Sunday, for Thursday marked the day of Jesus' ascension into heaven 40 days after Easter. Oh, but Ascension Day recalls much more than Jesus leaving, rising in the clouds to go into heaven. Today, this is a celebration of Jesus ascending to the throne, as we saw in uh, Daniel chapter 7. Today is the anniversary of Jesus' coronation as king over the kingdom of God. So I'd like to return to my uh, favorite text, I suspect, on Jesus' ascension, one written many years before it happened, Psalm let me read it. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <clears throat> this psalm clearly divides into four stanzas, beginning respectively with verse 1. Verse 4, verse 7, and verse 10. Uh, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to combine the middle two stanzas and boil this down to three lessons that we ought to learn from this psalm this morning. The first is this. The world plots rebellion against God. The world plots rebellion against God. Now, I don't know about you, I must tell you, I don't like conspiracy theories very much. It seems that no matter what the current human tragedy, someone soon spins a theory of a dark conspiracy uh, behind it all. We've heard too many of these over the years, from the theories surrounding the assassination of John F. Kennedy to the, the notion that 9-11 was an inside job. It seems like conspiracy theories never end. But I'm seldom convinced by such things. There's certainly evil everywhere in the world, but every evil event is not the result of some specific sinister plot hatched behind closed doors. Instead, on a beautiful day like today, we ought to be singing uh, for the beauty of the earth, and this is my Father's world. It's the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, and his fingerprints are on everything. And whatever our political views, how can we not see this Memorial Day weekend God's hand of blessing to preserve our freedoms in this nation? 
It's God who raises up rulers and brings down rulers and works out his purposes through nations, calls us to submission to authority. God has not called us to be conspiracy theorists or anti-government activists or whatever. But having said all that, God also tells us here that the world, not the creation, but sinful humans gathered in their societies, that world has a predisposition to rebel against the Lord. And because that rebellious spirit is so widespread, even people who normally can't stand each other will find common cause, often, in opposing the Lord. In that sense, the world does plot rebellion against God. This, this is the picture which the scripture paints for us here in the first three verses of this psalm. Nations with their kings and peoples with their rulers plotting a revolt. And the war cry is freedom. We don't want this God ruling us. We do not want his anointed one over us. Let's break off the chains by which God binds us. You may recall that anointed one is a familiar word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word Mashiach, from which we get in English Messiah. Or in Greek, the word is Christos, from which we get Christ. That means Messiah, and Christ means anointed one. In other words, this is about the Lord and his Christ. You see, much more subtly and much more widespread than the any conspiracy theory we might dream up, the nations, the peoples, the rulers of the world are constantly predisposed to join in a rebellion seeking to gain freedom from God and specifically from his Christ. So when and where does this take place? Well, it takes place everywhere. In all kinds of situations throughout all history. Sometimes in formal policy-making discussions between rulers. More often in the informal prevailing attitudes and assumptions of the day. People do not want God. Especially do not want Christ Jesus telling them what to do. And so when any idea arises, which includes talk of God in the public discourse, it's considered intolerant and offensive to people who don't believe. So suddenly banning it sounds like a good thing to do. It sounds like freedom. And when some judge decides that God's word cannot be mentioned in his courtroom, again, it sounds right to people. It sounds like impartial justice. In a million ways, great and small, the world plots against the Lord. Not so much in great New World Order conspiracies, but in the cultural air we breathe every day. This world is opposed to God. And then one day in history, this great counter, uh, uh, this great undercurrent of, uh, of rebellion came to a head, like a perfect storm. In Acts 4, the apostles, Peter and John, described the great rebellion against Jesus, which had taken place in Jerusalem. They explained what had happened in terms of this psalm, Psalm 2. Let me quote from Acts 4. 
Sovereign Lord, they said, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through your mouth, the mouth of your servants, our father David. And here they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. They continue. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Throughout the ages and to this day, the world has been predisposed to rebel against God. But on that particular day in Jerusalem, a great central rebellion occurred on which all history turns. That day, both Jews and Gentiles, both the leaders and the people conspired to crucify the Lord Jesus. That day, like no other, the world rebelled against the Lord and his anointed one, Christ Jesus. Dear people, don't be surprised when the legitimate desire for human freedom suddenly turns into a commitment to independence from God. Don't be surprised when freedom of religion gets turned into a demand of freedom from religion. Don't be surprised when academic freedom turns into political correctness devoid of any discourse concerning the Almighty. For you see all around us, even among us, the world that crucified Jesus still plots rebellion against the Lord and his Christ. Fortunately, that's not the end of the story. The psalm goes on. And there's a second truth in verses 49, and that truth is this. No one can stop God's king. No one can stop God's king. We don't often think of, Jesus, of, of God laughing, but here's the one place in the Bible where it specifically says that God laughs. You see it there in verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. This is not a laugh of amusement, nobody told a joke. It's a laugh of derision. The Lord scoffs at them. God sees this rebellion against him, and he knows this mismatch is utterly ridiculous. The creatures taking on their own creator? You must be kidding. What a joke. The Lord laughs. But the Lord doesn't just laugh. He acts. According to verse 6, God installs his king. In spite of the opposition of the world, doesn't matter. God installs his king. He's not affected by opinion polls or popular vote. He installs his king in spite of popular demand. And according to verse 7, the new king then embraces the, the divine decree. He, he says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. And according to verse 8, God promises to this king, his son, all the nations, the ends of the earth as his inheritance, universal rule over the earth. Nothing can stop God's king. Now the question is, what's this text talking about? When did God declare his son to be king? To whom did he, did he promise all the nations? 
David had many descendants. Certainly, they served as God anointed, God's anointed one over Israel. But even at the height of David's kingdom, he was never really one of the great rulers of the world so that it could be said the ends of the earth were his possession. Now you see, this passage was intended to point us beyond David to David's greatest son, Jesus. It was to Jesus that God said repeatedly during his earthly ministry, you, this is my son, you are my son. And in Romans 4, it was Jesus' resurrection that declared him to be the son of God with power. In fact, the apostles tell us explicitly that Jesus, that in Jesus' resurrection, this particular text is fulfilled. Listen to how the apostle Paul explains it in Acts 13. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the, word, the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who traveled along with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, our text. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the heavenly throne. God gave him the nation's as his inheritance. That's what we read in Ephesians 1. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. You see, no one can stop God's king. God has exalted him anyway. Now, throughout history, many leaders have tried to stop him, had tried in vain to remove Christ's influence from the world. In the fourth century, the emperor Diocletian, Diocletian at the urging of his deputy, Galerius, set out to rid the Roman Empire of every Christian, every Bible, every church, in short, to extinguish Christianity. In fact, as Diocletian advanced into Spain, he built monuments, praising himself as, I quote, having extended the Roman Empire in the East and in the West, and for having extinguished the name of Christians. He and his successor, Galerius, carried out history's most intense persecution of the church. But... Diocletian boasted too soon for in the end he was not successful after all by the time his ruthless successor Galerius lay on his deathbed he was begging Christians to pray for him and two years after his death the new emperor Constantine issued the edict of Milan giving civil rights and toleration to Christians and nine years only nine years after that Christianity was declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
Diocletian was a fool. No one can stop God's king. When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of the nations. When Jesus said that, he was claiming this decree from God in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Oh, as we look at the book of Hebrews, we see it pointed out that we don't see this all completed yet. Indeed, in the days of tyrants, it may look as if God's kingdom will be crushed completely. But though we don't see it all yet, we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, when God raised Jesus from the dead, demonstrating him to be a son, and when God exalted him to his own right hand to the place of power and authority, world history was changed forever. As the Spirit says in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We may disagree on how the scenario will all work out in the end of time, but Christians everywhere continue to sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. In our day, the church often calls people to go and make Jesus uh, Lord in your hearts. That falls so far short of the gospel call. The true gospel is that God has raised Jesus from the dead and made him Lord of all, whether you like it or acknowledge it or not. Now God calls us to stop our rebellion and fall before him in submission, giving allegiance to his king. Which brings us to our last point, the message of verses 10 to 12. It's simply this. Honor God's son. Honor God's son. You know, to the defiant, nothing is more distasteful than to have to show respect or honor or deference. Outward compliance can be squeezed out without relinquishing one's defiant spirit. But honor and respect, the words stick in our throat. They're the death of defiance. But that's what God requires of the rebels who back in verse 1 were plotting mutiny. God demands that they and we honor the son he has exalted. So our immediate reply, like that of defiant children, which we tend to be, our immediate reply might be, well, why should I? So God gives us a couple of reasons. First of all, honor the son because he has all authority. We just read this back in verse 7, but let's think about it a little bit more. In our culture, we know nothing of royal decrees. We live in a society of legislation, of discussion, of compromise, of amendment and appeal. 
only in an absolute monarchy do people understand the weight of a royal decree. Absolute, unquestionable, non-negotiable, unamendable edicts from the king. But that's how Christ received his authority. By divine decree. God's word which is final and non-negotiable. So we honor the Son because he has absolute authority. If that's not reason enough, there's a second reason. Honor the Son because our welfare depends on it. That's the point of verse 12. Here we have both a warning and a promise. The warning is you must honor God's Son or you will be destroyed. The promise is all who are, all are blessed who take refuge in him. And folks, this warning and this promise still stand. Our welfare now and for eternity depends on whether we honor God's Son. Now, we're great with word games, so it's easy for us to say, okay, I honor God's Son, but it makes no difference. So let's think about what that means, really, for a moment. In verse 10, after speaking of the Son ruling the nations, we read, You kings, be wise. That would seem to imply, you need to think about this. You need to think about the implications of this. In other words, honor means giving allegiance to King Jesus, the allegiance he deserves. Then in verse 11 we read, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, with trembling. We fear and we rejoice at the same time, for we know that he is gracious, but we also know that we are dependent upon his mercy. Honor means serving the king in awe of his majesty. Verse 12 says, kiss the sun. Now that's hard to do literally, for he's in heaven, we're on the earth. But it does seem to imply some kind of relationship. He does not just say, salute smartly. Kiss the sun. Honor means loving the king. And finally, at the end of verse 12, we're called to take refuge in him. Let's talk about where we put our faith, where we're we have our hope. Honor means trusting King Jesus. Believing in him enough to stake our lives and our eternal welfare on him. This is the honor of God which God's people have so often failed to render. I think of Isaiah 29, 13, where the Lord took note that, quote, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. In fact, in 1 Samuel 15, the Lord rejected King Saul, who worshipped but didn't obey him, saying, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. So this morning I challenge you. It's possible to say the right words and bring your offerings and come to worship, but fail to honor the Son in your heart to the depths of your affections, and therefore rationalize disobeying him even while you supposedly are worshiping. But God requires not empty words and acts, but honor. Does that describe your relationship to Jesus? 
Do you give unwavering allegiance to him? Do you serve him in awe? Do you love him? Do you trust him with your life and for your future? It's in those terms that God demands we honor his son whom he has installed as king. To celebrate that Jesus ascended from the earth up into the clouds may leave us baffled and without explanation, but it doesn't necessarily change much about our lives if he just went away somewhere. Oh, but today we celebrate that Jesus ascended not just into the clouds, but he ascended to the throne of God. Today we celebrate Christ's coronation as the King of kings and the Lord of lords at the Father's right hand. Oh yes, the world of human sinners gathered in their societies continues to plot rebellion against the Lord and his Christ. But God scoffs at that mutiny. He has exalted his king anyway and nothing can stop God's king. Now as history proceeds on its course, as the nations hear of the rule of Christ, God calls everyone, everywhere, to honor his son, promising blessing to those who take refuge in him and destruction to those who foolishly continue their defiance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to get our minds around things that happened 2,000 years ago, things that are true in heaven where we can't see them, that seem far removed from our experience. So we need your help. We need you to grant to us understanding and to cause the truth of your word planted in our hearts to, to uh, germinate and grow and bear fruit until we think in terms of these greater realities that we can't see and that we don't confront in our culture today, but which are so profound and so determinative of what our lives and our eternal welfare is all about. Give us such an understanding of what you have done in regard to Jesus. Grant us grace to honor him and love him and trust him. In his name we pray. Amen.